Welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. My name is Dr. Chris Papadopoulos, and today I'm very excited to have on the line David Gray Hammond. How are you doing, David? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm looking forward to hearing all about the amazing work that you do, particularly in terms of addiction and some of your work in the forensic uh, space as well. Um, and you do all sorts of things, don't you? You've published books uh, and you're a big autistic advocate, really, really prominent uh, autistic advocate. So really looking forward to getting into the meat of those discussions. Uh, but as always, we've also got on the line our amazing co-host, James Gordon. How are you doing today, James? Hi there. Yep, I'm really looking forward to this one as well. Been looking forward to it for a while. So great. So David, uh, thanks again for, for coming on. Could you perhaps give our listeners uh, an overview as to, you know, your autism journey and your background, um, if you can, just to start us off? Yeah, so uh, it really starts... I mean, like a lot of us, it started when I was a young child. Um, My mother tried to have me diagnosed autistic when I was really in my early years, sort of four or five years old. Um, But she was rebuffed at every turn, told that she was an over-anxious parent with too much knowledge of the subject and that she was worrying about nothing. And I was perfectly normal and there was nothing to worry about. And I sort of struggled my way through school and school was a nightmare, honestly. I think a lot of us say that. Where are you um, from, David? I'm, I'm from Sussex, so at the moment I'm living in the Brighton area, um, but I grew up in a place called Bognor Regis, which is a very back backwards sort of town, lots of bigotry and not nice people, really. Um, and uh, going to school as an autistic kid who was not diagnosed autistic was really unpleasant because the sort of people in the place where I grew up, they don't accept difference. You know, there is a very normative standard of this is what a man is, this is what a person is, and this is what you've got to be. I didn't meet any of those standards. So I was bullied horrifically all throughout school. I struggled to engage with with learning because I got bored in lessons. I was hyperlexic, so I was reading far beyond my years. I was beyond my peers academically. Um, and teachers didn't really know what to do with me. So instead, they just left me to get bored and burnt out. And when I was about 15, we had what we thought. I, I, we thought I had a nervous breakdown. Looking back, it was it was an autistic shutdown. Um, I had just become too overwhelmed with the things in my life. There'd been a lot of trauma at home as well. And I had to stop going to school for three months. I sort of got back into the flow of education when I was at college and doing my A-levels. And it was when I got to university studying forensic archaeology that I uh, really, really got into academia because suddenly I was it was OK to be academically advanced. You know, no one was going to hold that against me. It was OK to be a nerd, quite frankly. And the problem was when I was at college, I had started hearing voices. This would later go on to be diagnosed as a schizophrenia spectrum condition alongside being autistic. And because I'd started hearing voices and experiencing paranoia, I'd turned to cannabis and alcohol because I was terrified of talking to anyone about it. And uh, it was it was just too too much, really. And at university, that drug use carried on. And it developed and got worse. And by the time I finished university, I was addicted to opiates, 
such as oxycodone and morphine. I was using uh, benzodiazepines such as Valium, which is, you know, diazepam, uh, things like that. And when I moved back home to live with my mother, I got into what was then a legal high called Spice, which is now a class A drug because they've recognized the harm it does. And for, for years, I was trying to get a diagnosis. I was trying to sort myself out. And eventually, I had this moment where I just decided to get sober. I got sober. And it was about six months after that, they finally diagnosed me autistic. So we're talking November 2016, I got my autism diagnosis. I looked around. And at the time, I thought autism was the reason everything in my life had gone in shambles. I was really full of a lot of internalized ableism. And then I found the autistic community and I started to actually like who I was through interacting with other autistic people. It, it saved my life, quite frankly. But I was looking around this community and I was thinking, there's no one here talking about autistic people and addiction. And clearly it's something that happens because it happened to me. So I decided to start writing about it. And the more I wrote about it, the more people wanted me to talk about it. And people started reaching out to me for support. And to sort of summarize the story, um, I'm now a published author. I do independent advocacy. I do consultancy with professional organizations. I provide training. Um, I have been involved with service commissioners, commissioning services for people experiencing addiction, representing neurodivergent people in talk of public policy around treat treatment for addiction, things like that. I also uh, recently actually got diagnosed as schizophrenic, which explained the voice hearing. So I've gone from being someone who could not stand who they were to a multiply neurodivergent person who is proud to be who they are and doing their best to be the person that I needed 10 years ago. And in all honesty, I owe that to the autistic community because without this community, I wouldn't be here today. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. How And what an amazing story of sort of resilience and hope, I suppose, you know, because it sounds to me that you really had had it up against you, really. I mean, you didn't get that diagnosis when you were a child, unfortunately. I think that probably would have helped. You lived in a, you know, a, a town that was was particularly stigmatizing and, and not not uh, very understanding so he had a lot of pushback and probably a lot of rejection uh, probably in subtle ways as well as obvious ways I'm guessing uh, and and schooling wasn't appropriate because you didn't I suppose you wouldn't have had the right type of support or insight that you needed so schooling wasn't wasn't good and you were bullied so I mean it's one thing after another then of course you had the episode the uh, of of hearing the voices and then getting into substances as a means of coping was it presumably yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean you really have had I mean you've had a really um tough run of it it sounds like David but I mean the the beautiful thing isn't it that uh, of your story at least to me is that you know look at you today I mean it's unbelievable you you are an inspiration to so many you have these books that we'll talk about. Uh, a little bit later on you do so much work on an individual level but also on a on a service level and then a national level so you're actually influencing policy aren't you in in these spaces right. and um you know that i mean how how amazing is that isn't it and uh, and it's all 
not all because of, but I mean, a big, a big, uh, a push towards that in, to enable it was the autistic community, which is yes. something we talk about a lot. I know James is a really, um, uh, you know, James is very, you know, a strong proponent of the, the importance of the autistic community. I mean, we all are, but I know James, you talk about it a lot. And uh, I think your story is evidence of its power, isn't it? You know, there's so much uh, power in the people, isn't it? But you just got to find the people, you know, you've got to find the community. It's not, not necessarily easy either, but these days it's easier than what it used to be, uh, I guess. When we're, and that's what we're trying to do, right, David? I mean, our charity, the London Autism Group Charity, is trying to help with that, and your work is trying to help with that, so that the next David Graham and can can find the support earlier yeah. in the community earlier, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so amazing. I look forward to the day I can hand the reins over to the next David Graham, and because you know, I don't do this because I want to be at the forefront of it forever. I do this because I'm hoping it it's people moving in that direction you know yeah. yeah absolutely amazing and you're a you're a father as well right i am a father yeah i have a four-month-old son oh and, congratulations uh, he's, how's he's that going gorgeous. it's going well actually he, he's a good sleeper which i'm quite grateful about <laughs> <laughs> well that's your first bit of good luck then isn't it, David? Yeah. Is it? <laughs> i mean that makes all the difference uh well that's great mate um so congrats on that front so you were diagnosed in the year 2016 Uh, so you were around the age of i was 26 26 yeah i mean that is a you know reasonably late diagnosis isn't it i mean i know people go on to have have, unfortunately have longer waits for their diagnosis or awareness that they're potentially autistic and begin their journey but even that at that age is is much later than you know it would have been had the had your mum got the right kind of support. Why why did your mum think you were autistic? What was it she was picking up on? Um, she picked up on things like I basically never slept. Apparently, um, I at all, just not at all. I was awake constantly. I didn't interact with my peers in the sort of typical way. It wasn't that I was antisocial, but I much preferred sort of parallel play to interactive play i also my mum talks about the fact that as a child i i was like i could read books far beyond my age and quote entire chapters word for word and Mm. yeah it was just i think it was just a number of these things sort of coming together sort of saying this is not a neurotypical child and my mum who at the time she's a priest now actually that's a whole other story um, my mum at the time was working in a sort of a play inclusion coordination. So she was working on inclusion teams to sort of help uplift kids like me. So she had a lot of working knowledge around the subject. But it was because of that working knowledge that they told her she was over anxious. Wow. And that she must be imagining it because she worked in that field when actually that wasn't the case at all. That's really, really sad. That's really, really poor. And, and again, you know, we we at the charity hear so many similar. I mean, every story is different, but similar stories in the sense of, you know, the initial point of contact with professionals being much more sort of resistant and uh, difficult than it should have been, and missed opportunities. I mean, it, it happens over and over and over again. And I really do think that there's so much work to be done with the professionals in terms of their 
understanding and their compassion and their approach you know uh, i mean to just simply assume that your mum was was being you know uh difficult you know is it's just too much of a, a leap of judgment really without any any clear solid evidence you know so it's poor really really poor but I, I suspect that this is the kind of thing that's happening quite frequently unfortunately far too frequently in my experience yeah, yeah. Uh, James, what do you think about the autistic community element? Isn't it fantastic that that saved that really saved David? It sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And we've we've worked in a number of ways with you, David. As, as you know, as you said, you are at the at the forefront of changing the professional narrative on autism, and also the the social narrative as a result of that. I want to go back briefly. You mentioned internalized ableism when you were speaking. Maybe we could go into what that actually means for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to discuss that. I mean, when we think about ableism, it arises from those sort of neuronormative attitudes, the idea that there is a correct way of being, embodying yourself, behaving, you know. And so ableism is discrimination against people who don't fit those neuronormative standards. It's, you know, if you see someone who is behaving differently it's discriminating against them on the basis of disability and when we grow up in environments that that we're surrounded by ableism we start to internalize those that discrimination and we turn it on ourselves so when i talk about internalized ableism i was taking on board the discrimination that i experienced for being neurodivergent and disabled and i was turning that that on myself and I was believing the things that were said and I was really it's kind of like to put it simply I was beating myself up for being myself yeah I've done because I'm a my 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 day job is is university academic right so I do I do teaching and I also do some research on autism stigma and I've done some work on internalized stigma among parents of autistic children right and what we found is that when parents internalize stigma this is the biggest poison for their mental health compared to any other type of stigma that they experience of course experiencing social stigma is bad of course if you experience if you're getting negative messages and rejection and getting pushback of course that's bad but it's even worse when you when you actually agree with it and you and you begin to beat yourself up as you as you said. I mean, that is just pure poison for your mental health. Um, when when did that happen to you, David? When did you start experiencing internalized stigma or internalized ableism? Probably when I was in junior school. I would say because I started being bullied when I was in about year three. That was when the kids really started to notice I was different, and I very rapidly started to hold myself responsible for that bullying. I believed that I must deserve the way I was being treated for being different. I even had teachers saying, you know, when my mum tried to talk about the bullying, they would say things like, well, David's not a typical boy. What, what do you expect? You know, because I, I was, I was into dancing. In fact, I very nearly became a professional dancer. I was very into dancing. I played the trumpet. I was academically ahead of my peers. I wasn't interested in team sports and Teachers literally said to my mom, well, you know, if David acted more like a typical little boy, he'd get bullied less. And they used that to 
escape from doing anything about the bullying. So I turned it all on myself and started to think, well, if even these grown-ups think that, then it must be something wrong with me. I, that just winds me up, David. My blood pressure is going, uh, getting higher here. I can tell if I had blood pressure monitor, it'd be uh, off the roof right now. I mean, that is really upsetting. And, uh, you know, you need, you need people like yourself in those kinds of situations need, need heroes. Do you know I mean, you need that you need people to, to interject and break the cycle. Do you know what I mean? You know, if you can't do it because you're a child or your, your parents can't do it for whatever reason, you know, a teacher can be the savior, you know, it can, the teacher can be the one that's, that says, you know, uh, knows nothing. It's not about your child. It's about the, the terrible culture within the school or the terrible culture within the community and you know reassure the child and and protect the child as much as as much as they can not to add additional difficulties you know i mean uh, or additional blame you know at some point the child needs a proper advocate you know and it's it's really sad and disappointing that you, you didn't get that but i think and i worry that your story is is quite prevalent even even today honestly speaking i think it probably is and this is why i qualified as an independent advocate because i feel very strongly not that i need to save people but it gives me the opportunity to empower people to use their own voices in these scenarios i you know i can learn about how the systems work so that i can teach people how to take a system that is designed to work against them and use it to their advantage. That's amazing. Wow. wow. So how, do, how does a system that is at its core problematic, how can that be turned around and, and be... We start used? by dismantling the narratives that uphold it. I mean, the, the biggest, the, 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 the most fundamental thing that we're faced with at the moment is the fact that we have this binary of neurotypical and neurodivergent. Now, obviously, everyone in the world has a different brain. Neurotypicality is essentially a performance, and the people who can perform to those neuronormative standards we call neurotypical. But anyone who can't, outside of that, we require them to go off and get diagnoses, to access support, get accommodations. Fundamentally, what needs to change is we need to accept that everyone needs help somewhere, and we shouldn't be medicalizing someone's struggles just because they're a little different to what we expect from normality. Yeah. It's about celebrating individuality, right? And yeah, fundamentally we we are a diverse species. We shouldn't be medicalizing everything outside of a little group of us. Mm. But why, why is that? Why do you think we are in that medicalized binary world? I mean, I think really, and I talk about this in my books, um, we live in a sort of capitalist, neoliberalist society where we are pushed to be productive members of the workforce who, you know, exist to, to drive up profits and produce new things. And it's constant push to do more, do more, do more, buy more, buy more, buy more. And those of us who don't perform well to the standards that fit into that system, it's easier to say, we're ill and discredit us than it is to actually say, well, maybe the system needs to change. Maybe we need a system that works for everyone. And, you know, the problem is, is the systems that we 
live in at the moment, a, a very small number of people have a great deal of privilege over the rest of us. And when we threaten that small group's privilege by, you know, upsetting the status quo, that's that's when we get pathologized. Mm. So it's a tool, essentially, to yes. uh, maintain order that is designed to benefit particular people or, or systems and push back against, you know, um, those kinds of external threats to that system. Is, is that what you're saying? It's all part of that kind of that part, that kind of game. Yeah, West Western culture especially has this big sort of consumerist, mm. you know, industrialist approach to everything, and it doesn't want to give us the accommodations because the accommodations might mean an initial big cost to actually help us into the workforce. If you think about it, autistic people, I think the latest statistics said that only 22% of us are in employment of any yeah. sort. And when you think, well, actually, if they were willing to sacrifice some profit for a couple of years and make the workplace accessible, there could be a lot more of us in work. Yeah, and that could actually that could actually benefit consumerism in a way. And it's yeah. ironically because there's so much strength within that workforce that isn't being tapped into. Yeah. But the, the problem is that it does mean really changing the wider world's outlook on not even just autistic people, but neurodivergent people on the whole. Yeah. 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 I think it, I think it probably, it sounds to me like on the broadest level, it comes down to the fact that, society western society in particular is is just fixated on this model of consumerism as you as you correctly described it as opposed to self-improvement and and internally yeah. examining what's best for everyone you know yeah. it's, it's just this sort of i suppose it's this default isn't it that we that we're so the society has just been so used to for so long and has got us where we where we are for better or worse yeah. and that's so that many people benefit from in this system the powerful people so it is a social it is a social a big social issue that spills into this this um in, into so many different ways including all the way down to um you know ableism and uh yeah. individual autistic discrimination so, so i totally totally agree it's fascinating what's your what's your view of it james yeah so in regards to what you're saying, David, about these big social problems, when we started the charity, I was thinking about a lot of these things and did what they call a theory of change, which is like a massive detailed diagram about all these long-term goals that we would have. And I'm scheduled to do a live stream with Chloe Faraha and Annette Foster when they can to speak about, because they, they were talking about this vision they had of autopia you know this autistic utopia where everything would be as we wanted it to be and society would be as 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 accommodating as we would wish it and things like that so that that was unknown to me until they started talking about it online so i said well i've got this theory of change and it sounds very similar to what they were they were proposing where um so i called it my hundred year plan because it it sounds so fantastic some of it but Actually, it's really just recognizing autistic people's basic human rights and giving them that. Well, when when you look at it, it feels like it's going to take a long time anyway to, to change attitudes and 
to get the people in power to actually do something about it. You know, it, when you look at, for instance, what difference it would make to have the public services trained in neurodiversity or to have training in schools for the younger generation, to have autistic people come and speak, you know, things like that. What impact that might have on bullying and, and attitudes in the young and as they're growing up, you know, and when we see the failings in the workplace from the police force to the NHS and everything like that. And, and it's taken terrible things even to have a basic training in the NHS that people have had to die before something is done about that they didn't even have any training on autism in the whole NHS and until people like uh, Paula McGowan have had to campaign because their son died tragically. So when you put it all into a one kind of big diagram, it, it seems totally unrealistic, but it's just what eventually needs to happen. Our charity's only been around for a couple of years, but when we formed the, ch the charity because for a couple of years before that, we had a Facebook group. We were constantly exposed to the autistic community and families, and we saw the same problems coming up over and over again. We went to people like the National Autistic Society and the big charities, and we weren't getting the response that, that was needed, you know. And so we decided that a different kind of charity was needed. I think the point that you made, James, if you, if you, if I may, about you know, things always seem to change only when a disaster happens. Do you know what I mean? It took, it unfortunately, took um, you know Oliver McGowan's uh, tragic passing uh, for the tra the the, the uh, NHS workforce training to to um, move forwards, and and I, you know I'm also you know talking about I suppose since we're on the topic of since we're discussing you know, social uh, structures and social issues on a broad scale. I'm also fed up of that culture. You know, it, 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 shouldn't, it shouldn't take a disaster or tragedy to um, push our society forwards, you know. And I think that's something else that we would benefit from. And I think, I think as a society, we would be so much better off if, again, we had this default position of internally examining what's best for everyone being critical about what's best as opposed to keep keep the default going because you know we're, we're progressing in terms of consumerism right david um and let's just keep going until something bad happens you know it's it's just it's all so messy isn't it and uh it's just not the right way i think i refer to it as crisis driven intervention yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, crisis-driven intervention, or you could put the word tragedy in there as well, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I suppose it kind of reminds me of the airline industry. It always takes an accident before before yeah. the airlines improve their policies and whatnot. You know, maybe we should do something about stopping the planes falling out of the sky <laughs> yeah. in the first place. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So there's a lot of progress to be done, hence why your uh, theory of change vision, James, is so important, isn't it? You you do have to sort of have a progressive, forward-thinking outlook and plan uh, that isn't responsive to crisis or tragedy, but is actually moving forwards in, in a sort of progressive way without 
the tragedies. And when I first looked at your plan, James, I thought, oh my goodness, a hundred years. This is, this is, unbel- this is too much, you know, a hundred, but actually when you think about it, a hundred years is actually maybe not enough time the way things are going. You know, it's actually uh, probably going to be longer given all of the resistance we've got to push through and all the barriers that we've got ahead of us. But uh, it's nice to be ambitious, right? If, if it takes a hundred years and I'll be happy with that actually. So, um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, David, uh, was I wanted to talk a little bit more about your work in the um, addiction and substance misuse uh, uh, space, because it does seem to me that you are one of the few people that does have expertise and is working on the ground at the very least in this arena of um, autism and substance misuse. And um Obviously, you've got your your own lived experience uh, with with substance misuse, uh, and I suppose that's what's driven that's what's initially driven your interest in this world. I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about your work and your your journey in this this domain? Yeah, so I mean, I do a lot of sort of uh, mentoring work um, where I I will I my mentoring work it's it's not like therapy or counselling, you know. And obviously, I'm not a doctor. But the way my mentoring works is I draw on my professional experience of the systems in place for substance misuse and my personal experience of what it's like to experience substance addiction. And I try to empower people to set boundaries in their life, to identify what their needs are, what their strengths, their struggles are as an autistic person, so that they can put those boundaries in place. And that helps them to reduce their need to self-medicate which is fundamentally what addiction usually is in my experience it's it's self-medication no one wakes up one day and goes you know what i feel like getting a heroin addiction today like that that's just not how it works so i do that a lot as my mentoring work um sort of before i got into the mentoring work i was doing a lot of um i suppose you could call it uh advocacy um but on like a large scale i was working with service commissioners i was sitting in drug related death meetings i was uh i sat on a board to pick brighton and hove's uh substance misuse service provider um really any discussion of addiction treatment and policy in in this part of england um i was involved a lot in representing neurodivergent people um and you know what what they may need to be said in these policy discussions i will say it's an uphill battle because so many people go well i don't see why they need special treatment or you know um, or just fundamentally not understand why we might need things done differently and it can be incredibly frustrating to be faced with that some of my biggest successes were you know i i looked at things like uh, i created drug market profiles looking specifically at the prescription drug market and how that was going around the clandestine market because i do find prescription drug use seems to be a very popular thing um, amongst neurodivergent people um i also did some harm reduction stuff such as getting uh, local universities to introduce drug testing kits so that student drug users could um could test samples of their drugs before they took them which would help reduce accidental overdoses perhaps they've been think they've bought cocaine but actually they're about to take a line of heroin 
they can test that a sample of that drug first so that that doesn't happen. So I've done a lot of work around that sort of sector, like harm reduction and policy. But really, the the work I love the most is to work on the front line with the people and and see really every, every time I work with a new person, it teaches me something more about autism and addiction because every person has their own story of how they came to addiction, how they came to be a substance user. And I will say the the most prevalent theme I come across is trauma. And it's important to drop these sort of normative standards of trauma because so many people think that trauma is related to things like going off to war or being, you know, horrifically abused as a child. Especially if you're autistic, you have to start taking into account things like sensory trauma. You know, mm. sensory environments can be horrifically traumatic for us. And I know autistic people who started using drugs because they just wanted to turn the sensory nightmare down, you know. And it, it's led me to realize that some of the ways we can, if we want to reduce the number of people who are having problematic relationships with drugs and alcohol, we've got to look at things like sensory envir- environments. We've got to consider communication and validation because when we invalidate the way a person communicates we are taking away their ability to tell us what their needs are what their strengths and struggles are that's traumatic Mm, we've got to think about the fact that especially autistic people are significantly more likely to be victimized by other people you know autistic people are also more likely to have mental health complaints because of all these other traumatic things and when you have mental health complaints where you are experiencing psychological distress it's very easy to fall into that habit of maybe drinking a bit too much or drinking too much too often, you know, or, or, you know, reach for that pill that you've had sitting in your cupboard for a while and realizing, well, actually this makes it feel all better for a while. So maybe I'll do it again. You know, we've really got to think about the way that society is traumatizing people because that is why so many of us have mental health complaints. And it's why so many of us are in such levels of distress that we turn to drugs and alcohol. And this is really what I do with my mentoring work, is it's trying to work out, it's trying to help people find a way out of the distress that isn't going to endanger their health. Yeah, it's really, really, really fascinating. And and I completely agree that so much of it is linked to mental health, isn't it? Um, and But I love the point that you made about the um the fact that we've got to think about trauma in in a non-typical fashion and think about it in if through the lens of neurodivergence you know i absolutely love that i mean employment discrimination as well is another one that that we see in the charity a lot yeah and so it yeah it could take anything because everybody is different so i suppose trauma could could be a consequence of of anything really for for anyone it could be it could look quite different from person to person but the key thing is that it's had such a profound psychological impact whatever that thing is that it's then led to the risk of falling down the trap of of substance misuse um so yeah i mean what with your experiences david have you got have you got any sort of views or feelings even on whether or not 
um, substance misuse um, is is particularly prevalent among autistic people or is there or even within the autistic population are there certain kind of subsets of people that you've seen that are particularly more vulnerable to it perhaps certain age groups is it more prevalent among males than females or have you seen any kind of patterns like that i mean interestingly i'd start by saying there was some research done by the university of cambridge in 2021 and what they found was whilst we were less likely to report recreational drug use we were far more likely to report self-medicating with drugs um and especially where you had the intersection of autism and adhd it you know the person meeting the criteria for both diagnoses there was something like a nine times increase in the likelihood of self-medicating so you've really got to start thinking about like the, the sort of power structures in a person's life when you're a neurodivergent person there's often multiple power imbalances throughout your life especially if you exist on intersections of race gender identity sexuality you've got to start thinking about you know other people who who are involved in this person's life what are they doing to help them mitigate the effects of their sensory environment what are they doing to help this person gain meaningful employment what are they doing to make sure this person has access to adequate health care you know when you think about the power imbalances in a person's life you start to think about things like minority stress such as that which monique botha talks about in in their research the thing I found that really I, I've not found particular groups in my professional practice that are more likely within the autistic community. I've just found the autistic community has a high rate of self-medicating. Some people find their self-medication problematic. Some people find they can go through life self-medicating with things like cannabis and it doesn't really impact them that much. But self-medicating in general seems to be a very, very prevalent thing amongst autistic adults. And I think if we want to see a reduction in the need to self-medicating, we need to start looking at the research that's out there, especially that which follows those sort of emancipatory models. So going back to Dr. Monique Botha's uh, research, they found that there was a reduction in this sort of minority stress effect when you introduce community connectedness so we come back to that thing from my story Dis discovering the autistic community saved my life because suddenly i was surrounded by people who empowered me to control my sensory environment to find meaningful employment they taught me how to access healthcare in a more meaningful way you know all these different aspects of my life i was able to gain more control over by being connected to other autistic people and i think this is really what I found in my work is that the self-medication, especially the problematic relationships with drugs and alcohol, are more prevalent amongst autistic people who have had less access to the autistic community. Mm. Do, you, do you think this perhaps this sort of the power of the community, uh, the power of the autistic community, do you think it is reflective of the fact that, you know, autistic people neurodivergent people perhaps are almost playing catch up with community acceptance and connections with other people because they've been discriminated against for so long and they've experienced so much more loneliness perhaps than other groups and internalized ableism as you, as you described it, internalized stigma that they 
they've been victim to not having that so much in their life. And then so when they find it, it's like a almost like a, a rebound effect. It's like, wow, this is this is this is so amazing because I've not had this enough in my life and now I'm getting it. It's it feels all the more magical. Does that make any sense? I think there's probably something to be said for that, because certainly when I first discovered the autistic community, it, it was one of the greatest joys I'd ever felt. You know, finally, there's a place in the world where I fitted in. But th- there's something to be said for what comes after that, when you realise that, OK, I found this community and finally I fit in, but the rest of the world around me is still very hostile. Yeah. And I think that's where it becomes important that we have people speaking about issues such as addiction to substances because the community connectedness only takes us so far. We need to have strategies in our lives that mean we don't return to problematic ways of coping. And there are, you know, Any way of coping is a valid way of coping. You know, we do what we must to survive. No one should be judged for what they've done to survive. But, you know, you have that big boost from the finding the community and you're you're on cloud nine, and then you realize that things are still hostile in the wider world. There's that temptation to return. That's where people like myself as mentors can be helpful because we can say here's the boundaries you need in your life you know based on what you're telling me about your strengths your struggles i think these boundaries will help protect you from a world that is hostile and i i think you know educating autistic people about what it means to be autistic rather than teaching them how to be neurotypical is a much more protective factor You know, when we try and teach autistic people that they need to fit in with neurotypical society by being more neurotypical, we're not teaching them the skills they need to survive. We're teaching them something that is still going to inherently traumatize them. So that's where, you know, further work in the autistic community comes in, because we need to teach autistic people how to be their best autistic selves, not how to pretend to be something that other people will find more convenient. 100% 100% mate 100% agree just one one other little question when you say self medicating that autistic people are particularly there's a particularly high prevalence of self medication you, you said how how do you define that what is self medication exactly so i would define self medication as anything that is causing discomfort using drugs and alcohol to treat that discomfort and bear in mind by discomfort i mean everything from you know those noises are uncomfortable through to i have been horrifically abused and i don't know how to cope but anything that is uncomfortable distressing using drugs and alcohol in a way that has not been necessarily prescribed by someone who knows what they're talking about say a, a medical doctor so for example it could be anything from smoking cannabis in order to cope with a loud environment or having a drink in a nightclub because you can't cope with the, the environment of a nightclub through to using heroin because, for example, you know, I was addicted to morphine and oxycodone, but largely because I could not cope with my psychotic features. So, so really it, it is, 
it's kind of playing doctor for yourself, you know. Mm. I'm not saying all self-medication is bad. You know, like I said, I know people who use cannabis medicinally without a prescription and it doesn't do any harm in their lives, you know. And you know what? Fair, fair play to them. That that's That's fine. But we have to recognize that self-medication does come with that risk of habituation and therefore, you know, addiction. And really addiction in this context is where we lose control of our our ability to moderate our usage to mitigate harm done to ourselves. And Mm. that's where self-medication becomes dangerous is where we can't regulate our usage anymore in a way that protects us from not just physical harm, but social harms, emotional harms you know, financial harm, you know, and there is a wider conversation also to be had about the fact that there are criminal gangs who will take advantage, especially of autistic people who are involved in drug use. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So self-medication, that's quite different than to recreational um, uh, purposes of of use. There's probably a gray area because recreational use you know kind of implies that you're using it for fun a lot of people even people who self-medicate enjoy the effects of drugs so you could argue there is recreational use elements to it but when i think of recreational drug use i think of for example the person who might smoke a joint at a party or enjoy a drink with a few friends or um maybe take an ecstasy pill at a rave um but then not really use it at all in the wider sense. Often, when uh, really, when I'm talking about self-medication, I'm talking about people who use substances regularly in order to cope with something that would otherwise not be easy to cope with. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess then it makes, it does make sense, doesn't it, that autistic people are quite vulnerable to that, given that they're yeah. much more likely to experience all sorts of different types of trauma and um, psychological distress and anxiety uh, because of these social issues uh, that we've discussed. So yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in this, this whole narrative needs to change. Otherwise it's just going to continue, isn't it? Yeah. What what do you think, James? Yeah. You mentioned David, that you had problems with sleep when, when you were younger. And I think, Probably that in a lot of autistic people, that comes from trauma. I know certainly when I was young, right through school, I was bullied. I spent most of the night replaying events in my head rather than sleeping. And I just didn't question that because I didn't know that was in the 70s and 80s. And I didn't know the word autism. It was never mentioned didn't mention it so um, I just accepted that that's what happened to everybody and I didn't even question it to myself until I was a bit older and then I think once I actually realized what I was doing then I stopped doing it but just replaying that that trauma every night it could be events that were years previous you know it could be going right back to when I was in primary school or something like that and trying to find answers you know to why i felt socially excluded and things like that and to all these impossible questions you know like why i couldn't fit in and 
so yeah I, I think a lot of these traumas start when people are young and I can see how you know it's, it's, it seems like a simple thing sleep to most people I think but that all kind of plays into the larger picture of things and why people can have these bigger problems and I think it's important with the sleep thing for example you can see how someone could fall into self-medication. You know, if they're offered a pill that's, that helps them switch off at night, you know, and they realize, wow, this works. And so they do it again the next night and the next night and the next night. And suddenly they need a bit more than usual to get the same effect. And all of a sudden, you know, within a few months, they're taking huge quantities of these pills every night, you know, just for, for something that people take as for granted as sleep. But then you have to think about, as you said, there is a very complex set of experiences especially for autistic people behind our ability to do something that is taken as as standard as sleep yeah i think it's good it would be good to highlight as well the importance of we have to go through this route of getting a medical diagnosis don't we an autism diagnosis to be recognized and to have some form of understanding of what autism is and have it explained to us so maybe then people could go on to having explained that a lot of autistic people lack the melatonin hormones that help the body understand that it's time to sleep and maybe they could get some help through their, their GP to, to access that and, and see if it would help them, you know, and, and then maybe not have to fall into this trap that you were describing of self-medicating and playing doctor yeah we have to look at things like accessibility to healthcare and that because a lot of healthcare environments are not easily accessed when you're autistic yeah and certainly it's so difficult to get a diagnosis especially when people are older i think gps have just got no experience and no understanding of of how to recognize autistic adults certainly it's sort of as a childhood thing and then it just goes away (laughs) when people get older it doesn't even occur to some a lot of gps uh, autistic adults could exist out there and and not be diagnosed so because a lot of people that have come to the charity for help have said that they've not been referred by a gp you know so that must be a common thing, I think. Yeah. And then it makes their problems worse, you know, having to wait these long years and years to try and get a diagnosis and having to fight for it. It's just a massive problem. A lot of these points that you're making, James, I think sort of connect with um, uh, some of the articles or blogs, as you might call them, on your particular uh, webpage right um, David so you've got this yeah. website called emergentdivergence.com uh, and this is where you post uh, various blogs and, and they are they blogs about your sort of your particular kind of musings or your perspectives on particular so they're things, sort right? of a combination of my personal experiences my professional experiences my academic interests and um, Recently, there's a lot of stuff on neuroqueer theory in there because I've kind of gotten a bit of a thing about reclaiming neurofuturism from the 1700s. 
tech geeks. Um, but uh, um, yeah, like I, my blog broadly these days looks at sort of like the structures in society and how they contribute to uh, some of the negative outcomes we have a tendency of seeing, such as addiction and mental health concerns. Specifically, I do co-author a blog series on that website called Creating Autistic Suffering that looks at some of the reasons for negative outcomes in the lives of autistic people. And I co-author that with Tanya Adkin. And, you know, we, we draw on a lot of academic research and things like the law, the, the research, various codes of practice and how they all interact to make hostile environments for autistic people. Well, that's so great. I really recommend everybody take a look at um, David's website, emergentdivergence.com. Why did you call it Emergent Divergence, David? Uh, it was kind of an inside joke with myself because obviously, as I said, I, I got diagnosed six months after achieving sobriety and the professionals at the time kind of acted like my neurodivergence had just emerged out of nowhere. So I called it Emergent Divergence. Um, <laughs> All right. But yeah, it was really kind of me ribbing at the uh, yeah. professionals who had ignored my very obvious autisticness um, for yeah. over two decades. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And uh, I see also that you have, and you've also mentioned uh, the books that you've yes. got. So you've got two books, right? One of them yeah. being a treatise on chaos, embracing the chaotic self and the art of neuroqueering and that was published in january 23 is that right it was yeah that's a very short book it's only about 40 pages long it's more of a chat book and it explores some of my own experiences with neuroqueer theory and how i engage in neuroqueering uh which neuroqueer theory sort of evolves out of uh queer theory it's the idea that we have you know neuronormative standards this one correct way of thinking being acting neuroqueering is subverting those expectations so it is going against the grain it's it's breaking free of the status quo and i explore how i've engaged with neuroqueering and changing my embodiment of my neurology through things such as my engagement with psychedelic drug use with um, meditation and also i talk about my psychotic episodes and how they whilst being very distressing have been a transformative experience for me and have really taught me to look inwards and consider how I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago, and I will be someone different 10 years from now, and to look at my sense of self and my sense of identity as this moving target, as I have new experiences, who I am changes, you know, so my interactions with people in the environment fundamentally change my sense of identity and sense of self, and it was about exploring how who I am is a constantly changing and growing entity. Wow. So, so your psychosis has, has enabled you to tune into that a little bit more effectively. Yeah, I, I wanted to explore the fact that, okay, psychosis is a horrible experience. It's very distressing. You know, no one would choose to experience psychosis. That doesn't mean I learned nothing from it. I did gain some things from it. And this is something I want people to understand about neurodivergence as a whole. Not every aspect of being neurodivergent is positive, but it doesn't mean we should medicalize it and pathologize it and try to hide it away. 
everything in life tends to be quite neutral and neurodivergence is no different to that. And being schizophrenic, I don't view myself as mentally ill. I view it as a form of acquired neurodivergence. My brain changed because of the way it learned to survive the things that had happened to it. And these, these are now experiences I have as, as a consequence of neurodivergence. And I view, I take medication for it, not because I view myself as ill, but in the same way that an ADHD person might take Ritalin to help them in environments that are not designed for them. Right, right. Makes, it makes a lot, a lot of sense. And you have this other book, The New Normal Autistic Musings on the Threat of a Broken Society. Does that sort of tune into some of the earlier themes that we were discussing about? Yeah, so this is, this is, really, my, um, this is really my main book. Um, and uh, it came out last year. Um, and it looks at sort of normativity in society and how, you know, the, the structures in society tend to be designed without autistic people in mind, or in some cases, almost as if they're trying to oppress autistic people. And it looks at it through the lens of things like neuroqueer theory and neurofuturism, and it explores how how we can work towards a better future for autistic and neurodivergent people. And in fact, as you mentioned Autopia earlier, James, um, I actually have a couple of chapters in there about Autopia and what some of the, ba- what some of the barriers to a sort of autistic utopia might be, you know, thinking about things such as, you know, it's all well and good accommodating autistic people, but every autistic person has a different set of needs. So how would we balance everyone's individual needs to make the space as accessible as possible. Um, yeah, so that's something I often kind of fantasize about what would happen if I suddenly won the lottery and we could, you know, imagine if we could buy a town or something and have like a couple of hundred autistic families go there to live <laughs> and, you know, what would it look like? So I, I recommend everyone to read that book of yours yeah no i i really try and think about like you know if we wanted to make such a world a reality what stood in our way and how would we accommodate such a diverse set of strengths and struggles yeah absolutely Absolutely. yeah okay so please if you're listening to this do take a look at those two books the new normal and uh the treatise of chaos by david and tune into his podcast as well right david do you want to mention your podcast yeah so i have um i i co-host one podcast for academy which is the especially interesting podcast basically we invite autistic guests on to info dump about their special interests we've had all sorts of guests we've had uh we had a forensic psychologist who did a psychological analysis of the resident evil series we had the great-granddaughter of the man who was the last at the wheel when Titanic struck the iceberg. We've had things about Japanese opera, assistance dogs. There's just such a wide range of topics on that because autistic people have so many varied interests. And fundamentally, what we wanted to show is these aren't autistic obsessions, in inverted commas. This is autistic people developing real expertise because they have a true passion for the subject. And then I also have my own podcast that I started recently, and we're only about three episodes in at the moment. It's called David's Divergent Discussions, and 
It's basically, uh, we talk all things about neurodivergent identity and culture. We get into some of the philosophies behind it, some of the experiences, and we really explore where neurodivergent people's sense of identity and where our growing culture emerges from. And and are you coping with all these things, David? I mean, how are you how are you juggling all of the various? Well, I'm sure you've probably things. noticed that I've been sat here drinking a can of energy drink the whole way through. This. <laughs> I have noticed yeah. that's 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 my own <laughs> self medication right now. Um, but uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Um, I I do a lot because obviously I work for Gecko Community as a young person's mentor. I run my own business, DGH Neurodivergent Consultancy, where I do a wide range of things from advocacy to consultancy to mentoring. I do work for Academy. I do their live streams. I I do some of their consultation work. I run their podcasts. I have my own podcast. I write books. I blog. Sometimes it feels like I rarely stop. And on top of that, I have a four-month-old son. So... Um, I do have to remember to take time sometimes to take a step back and just have a couple of weeks off. <laughs> yeah, at least a couple of weeks, I think. At least, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it is truly inspirational, all of the work that you're doing, David, and um, you're an inspiration to so many of us, including uh, us at the charity as well. And I'm really, really grateful for everything that you do and your your sort of very kind of important kind of critical take on key social issues particularly in terms of uh, autistic and neurodivergent discrimination and what needs to change so thank you so much it's been really insightful particularly the discussion around addiction i thought i thought that was really really fascinating and yeah uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add or highlight before we um, wrap up i think just the last thing i'd like people to remember is that you know i focus on these social issues because autistic rights are human rights you know they're not special rights on top of human rights the things that autistic people need are fundamental human needs and we shouldn't be treated differently just because our needs don't match up with a particular group's needs all autistic people are worthy of support and it's when we don't have that support that we tend to have the more negative outcomes Absolutely. Fully agree. That is such a key, key message. And it's sad that it has to be said in a way, you know, yeah. I mean, it's so fundamentally obvious, um, but it does need to be said. So uh, it's sad, but it, it needs to be said. Uh, James, is there anything else that you'd like to highlight before we wrap up? Just to say thank you, David, for sharing all your wisdom with us. And uh, I really look forward to working with you soon in, on some of these issues, hopefully forward to it too so thanks very much david for coming on the podcast take care all the best with your with your son and all the parenting and the sleep i, I hope it stays stays in the, in the way that you've got it at the moment and getting some decent sleep yeah, <laughs> i wish you luck all right david well thanks again and take care all the best thank you take care everyone